History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge, one of us to go away and find out all we can before coming back and revealing all to the other. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. Hello, I'm Pete Goddard and you're listening to History Happened Everywhere. In the studio with me today is, as ever, my loyal sidekick, Mr. Ryan Weir. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> sidekick? Yes. This did that happen? Well, I thought I might get away with it. Uh, no, you are, of course, my arch nemesis. So it's been a bit of a transition, hasn't it, Ryan, from snow to not snow? Uh, how did you enjoy the winter wonderland we had recently? It was great. Okay, did you make? Would you make a snowman? If you made a snowman, you don't strike me as a man to be traditionalist on these matters. What would you construct from your snow? Snow woman. Wow, I thought you'd go further than that. <laughs> <laughs> but I forgot how lonely you were. <laughs> Uh, but of course, it's a known fact that you weren't straying outside because you were busy researching the topic of this week. That's right, I was. And boy, have I done some research. I have turned over stones. I have looked under logs. I have checked the, the highest shelves. <laughs> well, a little bird told me that you purchased a book. And not only book. I bought a book, I bought like actual scientific papers and stuff. Wow, okay. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, Should we have a little uh, remind ourselves of what we uh, have selected for this week? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, um, shall I hit the rewind button? Do it. Okay, rewind. Uh, I'm going to start the later now. And my place is East Timor. Ooh. East Timor. Okay, let's Good. hit the time period. And the time period is the classical era. That's 600 BC to AD 476. Okay, and the topic is... Order. 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 Putting things in order. I'm nervous about this one, Pete. Wow. So here we are, Ryan. <laughs> yeah. It was a challenge, wasn't it? It was... I mean, this is the game, right? We have difficult, unknown, or yeah. unknown to us places... But the more, the less you know, the more you have to learn. Yeah. Right. Should we get started? Then? Yeah, I'm excited. Let's get over to excited. East Timor. Uh, can I get directions? <laughs> <laughs> East Timor is 300 miles north of Australia. Oh, wow. That's up to you. Ah, uh, yeah. I'm, I can do north. Yeah. See others I struggle. <laughs> <laughs> and it's an island. It's uh, like a long, thin, horizontal island. It's 300 miles end-to-end, east-to-west, by 55 miles north-to-south. Wow, that's a small island. It's a small island. Yeah, it's the last in a long chain of islands uh, that starts with Malaysia and the mainland and curls southeast down and to the right <laughs> for you. <laughs> uh, past Singapore, Sumatra, Java, Indonesia, ah, yeah. a bunch of other sun-kissed there. isles. We have been to Indonesia, that's right. Bali specifically, but yeah. <laughs> uh, and a bunch of other island nations all the way down to Timor heading towards Australia. So it's sort of that curve down towards it. Uh, it's the only Asian country to be located entirely under the equator. There are others that are 
that dip into Nudge, under nudging. the equator, but it is, yeah, l- entirely under the equator. It covers an area of 31,000 square kilometres, which is 12,000 square miles, which is 21 Timors in a France. 21 Timors in a France. Okay, it's not quite, in my head it was like super tiny, but that's... Oh, it's still pretty small. Yeah, and given it's like that long, thin, horizontal one, I like to think of it as layers. So 21 Timors on top of each other Okay, to make up a France. <laughs> uh, it is a country divided, as you might have guessed by the name East Timor. It's literally split down the middle. West Timor is today part of Indonesia, and East Timor is its own independent state. That always strikes me as remarkable, that there's an obvious barrier here that you'd think a little country, an island like that, would be one country. And to think that half of it's attached to this island chain nation and the other one, the other half of the same island is independent, that's remarkable. Completely independent, that's right, yeah. It's known officially as the Democratic Republic of East Timor. East Timor, as a name, is the anglicised version of Timor-Leste, which they seem to be used interchangeably. Uh, Timor-Leste is its colonial name, uh, which is weird, actually. Timor-Leste and East Timor means the same thing. The Indo-Malay for East is Timor. So East Timor is actually East East. That's even further East. (laughs) It's just so much East. More East. (laughs) Yeah. The native name is Timor Lorosae. It means rising sun of the East. Nice. This is going to surprise you. You're going to love this fact. It's in the East of the island. Right. Yeah. Okay. But (laughs) it also includes two nearby islands, Atoro and Jaco. Jaco? I don't know how that's pronounced. Uh, But also, and I like this bit, within the western side of Timor, there is this small enclave, and it's called the Okusi Municipality, and that's owned by East Timor, even though it's like slap bang, pretty much in the centre of West Timor. Okay, so East Timor is uh, about five and a half thousand square miles, as we said, about half, so 44 East Timors in France. The climate is humid, tropical, tropical island, mostly rugged mountains. There's a mountain chain that runs through the spine of the island uh, from the east coast all the way to the western border. Feels like there's not a lot of space left for the people. Uh, There are 1.3 million people in East Seymour. 1.3 million people are spread across 13 municipalities, the capital being Dili. Dili. How are you spelling that? D-I-L-I. Okay. Silly Dili. Wildlife-wise... Monkeys, deer, snakes, crocodiles, and this super cool, weird marsupial creature called the couscous. Not, mm. not the food, couscous. <laughs> uh, and and I thought that was going to be a horrid revelation that all these years I've been eating some mushed up ground stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, you'd, uh, you might not recognize it. I don't know, you might. It's a strange looking creature. It's a large possum and it's got these super starey eyes. Um, you wouldn't want to enter a staring competition with it. And it has a pouch as a marsupial is wont to do, uh, which it will carry its little young in. How cute is it on a scale of 1 to 10? Well, I want to say it's like an 8 or a 9, but its super scary eyes bring it right down to like a 4. <laughs> it looks, if if like you're expecting to see it or not. <laughs> yeah, like if you just walked into it and it was all staring right at you, yeah, you might turn tail and run. I'm getting a golem vibe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the, the people, let's go back to the people. They speak Tetum, uh, which is, and Portuguese. Those are the most commonly spoken languages, Tetum being like the native language. Indonesian and English is a growing language. It's mainly used for business. They have the US dollar as their currency. So you go there, you're going to get the US dollar. You might also get the Centavo coin, which is minted in Portugal. So they also have a, a Portuguese coin with a US dollar. They are essentially financially poor. Uh, Their main exports are oil, coffee, and sandalwood, which is something that we'll come back to later. Coffee employs 5% of the population. 
Uh, but it is recognized as the most oil-dependent country in the world. Oil-dependent? Oil-dependent. In that it's dependent on its oil exports? Indeed, yeah. Right. Which is unfortunate because its major reserve of oil is in the ocean, um, and it's essentially in a, a disputed area of the sea shared with Australia. Frequently disputed these areas full of oil, aren't they? Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Australia were, well, you know, we want a bit of that too. So they've agreed to kind of share it. I'm sure that will only end well. <laughs> Doubtless. <laughs> Doubtless, yeah. So that's, that's, that's East Timor. So two million years ago, we're going right back in time. It's a good start. Southeast Asia is looking very different. Uh, and the reason for that is because the in the North Hemisphere, there is a lot of ice, which means all the water has shrunk down. And we're now looking at a sea level that is 120 meters lower than today. Wow, that's huge. It's a huge, yeah, super deep. And that's Sunda land. And Sunderland is approximately three Frances in size. It's enormous. Wow. It's a really big space, yeah. And it follows that same curve. Literally, you can see it on satellite maps today because it's just underwater, right? So the ridges of, it, of its outline are still there. It's just underwater. Uh, and it fo- so it follows that, that trail all the way down to Australia and to East Timor, which is right at the very, very end of Sunda land. And in fact, it follows the, the, the curve of Southeast Asia. You can see it on a satellite map. And so you can see the edges of where Sunda land used to be. And it curves down all the way towards uh, Australia, except it wasn't Australia in those days. Australia, again, because of that that sea level dropping, meant that New Guinea, Australia, Tasmania, all one big area. And that area was called Sahul. 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 So Sunda leads all the way down to Sahul. And uh, yeah, they're within relatively touching distance of each other. Super close. Except for there is like this deep water trench in between Sahul and Sunda, which it tells us that they were never connected. Certainly not within this time period. So there there was no land bridge there at that point. That deep trench, that line is called the Wallace Line. um, And it just indicates that those two land masses never touched. And to the east of the Wallace Line is a group of islands, including Timor. And they are known as Wallacea. Wallacea. Wallacea, yeah. That feels unimaginative to me. That's right. Now, Wallacea and the islands that are there, including Timor, again, another separate region. So you've got Sunda... Sahul and then Wallacea. Those are the three major areas. All it feels like a fantasy map for a novel that you're writing. <laughs> Honestly, looking at these maps from this period, it's like, wow, totally different. But yet you can see how everything has shifted and all just from that drop of water. Anyway, the ice starts to melt. The world starts to flood with water. So within this region, only the highest peaks, the hills and the mountains survive. Right, Everything else is just underwater, under 120 metres of water. Yeah, so that's where we get those 10,000 or so islands that include Indonesia, Java, Borneo, Timor, and all the rest. 
that's where they emerge. Visible from. peaks, essentially. Visible peaks. That's exactly right. If any humans were around at this time, the communities that, that would have been there, not necessarily 2 million, but like up to sort of 100,000 years ago, they would have been living by rivers, by the sea. So any evidence of those people pretty much lost because it's all underwater. Yeah, not a lot of people on mountaintops as a rule, are there? <laughs> it's a long way to go. There's like reclusive people. Yeah. <laughs> 40,000 years ago then. Uh, now we're in a different period. We're in the Upper Paleolithic, and Timor is starting to be populated by migrations of peoples. The first to arrive... So is this with the water, sorry? The water's come back and now it's being populated, or...? People are able to get to Timor because they're on their, on their boats. Okay, right. So the water's come, Timor's an island, and people are Correct. arriving. That's right. exactly right. And so the first people are the Veda. And they arrive around about 42,000 years ago. And uh, they have excellent sailing skills, uh, hence being able to make the voyage. Yeah, we don't remember the ones who had terrible navigation no, skills. That's very true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so they're making long ocean crossings. They're catching massive deep sea fish. They're catching tuna. Tuna are huge. Wow. Yeah, this is 42,000 years ago. They, In fact, they are credited as being the, those that had the world's first fish hooks. So the Veda use Timor as the jumping point to Australia. They're there for a long period of time, and slowly, slowly, they're just shipping backward and forward from Timor to Australia. And, and that's, that's 300 miles, you said? Uh, yes, that's right, that's, yeah. So that's a... I'm assuming they're not in cruise ships at this point, so that's a bold move, isn't it? That is a... That's a strong mission each time yeah where you know they'd be in boats with perhaps 16 to 30 people and they'd just be doing that crossing and they did it regularly it became a thing and that's where it seems the the indigenous population of australia comes from wow from timor that as the jumping point so 3000 bc we get the second migration coming in and these are melanesians so these are from the east and they cause the veda for whatever reason to withdraw into the interior of the island so they give up on their seafaring ways and they become mountain folk Adapt and survive. The Vedas. Oh, Volmer, the new neighbors are here. New neighbors? I hope they're better than Vanders. Stupid Vanders. Hello, neighbors. We're the Vedas. Welcome to the neighborhood. Mithers, I like this new land. I wish to take it all. But, Mr. Mearns, aren't there people living here already? Yeah, we're right here. Never mind that. We'll drive them out in no time. Release the couscous. Yes, sir. <laughs> Vard! Put those fish hooks down. We're mountain people now. I can rumba. Don't have a tuner, man. Don't you talk to your mother like that. Now settle down and eat your twigs and berries. Mmm, twigs and berries. The Timorese myths, they tell of a, another migration, which were Chinese in origin. And they talk about how this this migration came in, sailed around the eastern end of the island and came in through the south. So all three sets of migrants to Timor, they're all living on this island now, and they all give up their seafaring ways and they just sort of isolate themselves there. 
So either it was just, you don't need to, to do it, you could just live off the land, you didn't need to travel further, or some other reason we just don't know. I, it, I'm, it's put me in mind of, maybe this just doesn't look like there's anything else, you, nothing beyond this point, so you think, well, I think this is the end, let's stop here. It reminds me of going to, uh, I think it was Utah, and it, the myths of the people who founded the town are about the Brigham Young, I think it was, mm-hmm. who said, right, this is it, this is where we're going, because destiny has brought us here yeah uh, but my theory is that they get to the edge and they look out across the great salt plain mm-hmm. which is this huge obviously flat obviously desert-like area and he's gone yep no this is where destiny wants us that's <laughs> yeah. it job done everyone put your yeah. stuff down i mean it's it's possible i the, the timor is still kind of surrounded by islands there are still a lot of activity of course you've got australia just 300 miles across the across the sea so I, i'm I'm actually hesitant to think that. I, oh, I do think because you've got the, I think it's the Andor Islands, and there's a, like there's like another bunch of islands that are all still around there. Yeah, it it's just piqued my curiosity, and I, I'm not sure why. Anyway, we're now entering our time period, which is 600 BC to 476 AD, 800 years or so there are thereabouts. So we're gonna obviously we're gonna talk about that that period, but before I go further, I want to just talk about after that period. Post 400 AD, the first historical record of the Timorese is in 1300. And the first record, it describes Timor as an island populated by 60 small kingdoms. Uh, So 1500, 200 years later, French Catholic friars turn up and they establish a village called Lifau. 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 Does that mean something or? uh... I didn't look it up. Internet, tell us. Hello. This is the voice of the internet. Lifau was the first European settlement on the island of Timor. The origin of the name Lifau appears to have been lost to time. However, there are more than 500,000 people within France, Australia, New Zealand and Hawaii who have the surname Lifau. Thank you. So no, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> so 1500 sees the French Catholic friars uh, turn up. They establish a village called Lefau. The Portuguese arrive shortly afterwards. And the French beat the Portuguese for a change. French be- yeah, the French friars as well. But yes, it's the Portuguese are credited as being the first to get there and settle. But actually, you know, there was also these French Catholic friars. A hundred years later, the Dutch East Indies arrive. So Dutchies are there and they start trading too. A hundred years later, 1700, it becomes a Portuguese colony, and they take the name Portuguese Timor as its name. Clever wording. (laughs) It is what it is, right? In 1789, Captain Bly arrives. Oh, right. Know him? Yes, I do. Where's he from? The Bounty. Yeah. Who was he? He was the captain who was very disliked by his crew, who mutinied, uh, kicked him off his boat, and uh, the survivors ended up in a place called Ascension Island. They did. The survivors did, yes. But those that were thrown in the sailboat, what happened to them? They went to Timor and they sailed 4,000 miles in a rowboat to get there. Wow. (laughs) Blythe described it as, uh, in his own words, it is not possible to describe the pleasure which the blessing of the sight of this land diffused among us. No, I can't imagine it would be. Yeah, amazing. Uh, 1859, the Dutch and the Portuguese split Timor down the middle, which is where the uh, the origins of the, the border comes from, and that creates East Timor. 1910, 
there is a great rebellion and the Portuguese have to repel the Timorese from trying to get their independence and 3,000 people are killed. Portugal leaves 60 years later, 1975, and Indonesia is waiting in the wings to step in and be like, actually, yeah, we're going to pick up where you left off. Uh, in 1991, there are these pro-independence demonstrators and they are shot. In 1999, there is a referendum which results in 78% of people being pro-independence from Indonesia. And by 2002, East Timor gains their independence. Wow, that's really recent. Normally, we've we've looked at a lot of other areas that have in the late 60s, 60s 70s got their independence. But 2002 is really uh, a recent addition to the Independence Club. In the Independence Club. Independence that. Club. That's good. <laughs> right, so let's talk about the classical period then. Tell me. So up to 600 BC, humans have existed. They have left Africa. They farm. They are trading. They are able to write. And they are worshipping. You've got Judaism. You've got Hinduism. And there are minor empires starting to spring up. That takes us up to 600 BC. So during this 800-year period, you get all the other major religions with the exception of Islam. You've got Lao Tzu with the founder of Taoism. You've got Siddhartha, the founder of uh, Buddhism. You've got Confucius, founder of Confucianism. And uh, you've got a young man called Jesus Christ, founder of Christianity. So significant changes in religion happening at that point. You've got civilizations growing. You've got Rome. Uh, you've got the Indian Empire, the Chinese Empire, the Persian Empire, and you've got the Americas all happening. All, this is all happening all within the same time. You've got Plato, the Greek philosopher, Alexander the Great, Macedonian conqueror. You've got Augustus, the first ever Roman emperor. You've got the Parthenon being built in Greece in 438 BC. You've got the Lighthouse in 246 BC, which is the tallest man-made structure at 100 metres high. That's taller than the Statue of Liberty. Do they have tour groups, do you think, they're going up <laughs> yeah, it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Be careful, it is 478 steps to the top of the lighthouse of Alexandria. <laughs> yeah, they've got those little airport x-ray machines to check your bag before you go up. Uh, you've got the Great Wall of China, 220 BC, 13,000 miles long. That is the length of the US to Mexico and US to Canada borders twice. It's enormous. 300,000 people died in the construction of the wall and they are buried in the wall. Londinium, that was established by the Romans, 47 AD. You've got the Colosseum built just 30 years later in 70 AD. You've got the Pyramid of the Sun, largest structure in Mesoamerica, and you've got basilicas and churches and cathedrals galore. They're Things all are happening. happening. Things are happening all time. around the world, aren't they? It feels like there's sort of a burst of connectivity occurring. Suddenly all happens during this, this 800-year period. And that's, I guess, why it's called the classical period. So it's a step change for humanity. But what was life like in East Timor? <laughs> well, it's hard to know. Um, the island, its inhabitants, all the people there, they're isolated at one of the furthest parts of Southeast Asia. Uh, you know, people weren't just stopping by for a cup of tea and a biscuit. You know, this is <laughs> to be able to describe what was happening. Probably not keen diarists either, were they? <laughs> no, nothing was written down. Or was it? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> uh, yeah, recent discoveries have shown Timor Leste has a lot of rock art. If we count rock art like... as writing it down, then yes. A lot of discoveries recently about it. 30 sites have been located so far, uh, most on the northeastern part of the island. Uh, and they're usually found in quite accessible locations, which is unusual. There's a lot of places in Southeast Asia that have rock art, but they usually write up a sea cliff in tiny little enclaves that's quite hard to get to. It's because presumably you don't want that 
Gary was here, carved over everything, and that's why it's normally places people don't get to to say they was there. I'm sure that's exactly right, yeah. Or they meant something special and it took effort to get to these places. Yeah, or it was easier to get to and the sea cliff has crumbled since then and it's harder yeah. to get to. You just don't know. Hey, Pete, um, come and have a look at this rock art in East Timor. Yeah, all right. Look at this one, no. Isn't it beautiful? It's like um, humanity's frail existence in the in the face of an uncaring universe. You what? Well, it's like a scream into the void, isn't it? It's just so moving. Uh, it looks like someone just spat paint on their hand. <laughs> oh, Pete. No. Look at the crook of the thumb. That delicate, angled digit. Well, it just conveys the briefness of human life. Really? Yeah, just look at the fingers. It's a symbol of creativity and fertility. Morality, even. Is it...? Yes. Look, consider the use of empty space here where the fingertip, you know, just opens out. It's connecting man to the infinite, whilst, you know, also suggesting that perhaps our life itself is a form of illusion, a fever dream, if you will, our body's mere fragment of eternity, wrapped in brief, oh-so-fragile flesh. Brian, it's just a hand. But is it, though? Yeah. But is it? Yes. Is it though? It is. Is it though? Yes. Is it? Definitely. Is it though? Certainly. Is it though? It is for sure. But is it? It absolutely is. Is it though? In no doubt in my mind. But is it? It is. But is it? It is. But is it? Definitely is. But the art is fading and they're deteriorating quite badly. So there's work that's needing doing at the moment to try and record and, and date the art. But what the art does tell us is that there is evidence of historical life on the island, right? Other than the myth and the legend, you know, it, it's giving us proof that there was people there. There are hand stencils. This is where, you know, people put their hand against the wall and then spit around it using some sort of like early paint. Uh, there is abstract imagery. Uh, there is geometric shapes, simple figures of people, animals, as you might expect with rock art. So the trick is to know when it was created. Right. Again, it hasn't been dated yet. It could have been 40,000 years ago when the Veda first arrived. It could have been 50 years ago. We just don't know. Um, if only there was some sort of evidence. <laughs> I feel I'm being led here somewhat, but carry on. <laughs> if only there was some sort of evidence. Pete. If only. What a shame. It, right, you know, that would, podcast here. That would, no yeah, well, exactly. Right. That would corroborate the art images and 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 you know and confirm they're within our time frame like but if only wait, there was something to sort what's of what's that over there ryan <laughs> <laughs> what's that behind your back ryan <laughs> well pete that just might be oh my goodness what a time to be alive <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh, and it was only unearthed in the past five or six years oh you got lucky if we'd have done this five years ago you'd had nothing yes that's true yeah So let's talk about East Timor in 2014. A round fragment of bronze metal is found in an old cemetery by local villagers. The metal is this beautiful low relief design. It's got a ten pointed star on it. It's it's surrounded by these concentric areas of sort of geometric shapes. It's really quite beautiful. And the villagers dug it up. And they kept it. They put it in one of their, their houses and they stored it as an heirloom, essentially. One year later, 2015, there is a village just north of this village where this discovery was made. And more metal is found. More bronze. And this time, it's in near complete condition. It is a big bronze drum. 
measuring about a meter in height. Like a musical drum, not a just like a, a container. Like a musical drum, yeah. And it, yeah, like I say, it's about a meter in height and with a the, the tympanum, you know, the bit that you hit, mm-hmm. that was 1.1 meters in diameter. So it's a big wow, drum. that's huge. It's a huge drum, exactly. Heavy, weighing up to about 220 pounds, 100 kilos. Wow. It's a heavy drum. It's missing part of the base and a small part of the decoration, but otherwise it is near complete condition. Decorations on the drum include four toads, and they are spaced equally around the upper edge of the tympanum. There are figures of humans on the sides, each with like high feather headdresses being, you know, being drawn. And there is this exquisite schematic image of a boat. And as with the first bit of the metal, you know, that, that scrap that was essentially found, which was, turns out to be, that's the tympanum of another drum. Oh. So it's the second one. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and as with the first one, they kept this drum in a in a house in their village and kept it again. So in, in my head, in my head, the first village found the, the disc, small bit. yeah, and were lording it over the village next door. Yeah. And then they found the whole drum. And they're yeah, like, hey, right. look, check this out. Then, <laughs> then all the villagers go, I'm just going to have a little just dig around the place. Yeah, <laughs> and they they both dug them up in the cemetery as well. So the government got involved, which is fine on this occasion, because normally the hesitation <laughs> is to think that's a bad thing. But they actually bought the drums from the villagers, uh, which sounds, like, again, sounds like a bad thing. But it was actually to prevent their sale to overseas collectors who like to buy that sort of thing. And they now sit in the national collection in the capital city. So to experts, they came along and they looked at these bronze drums and they went, we recognize these as Dongson drums. Oh, I love Dongson drums. So you should. So did the people of Southeast Asia. Um, these were created by the Dongsun culture in northern Vietnam. And uh, there are about 400 that have been found so far of these Dongsun drums spread across the whole of Southeast Asia, about 4,000 kilometers from east to west. So that's you know, all the countries. So Malaysia, Brunei, Philippines, Singapore, Indonesia, and now Timor-Leste that have now got these Dongsun drums. And these are found. all bronze or solid bronze all solid bronze yeah they have slightly different variations to them different decorations different sizes but they are all these big bronze drums called dongson drums so they don't know what you know the experts don't know what they were used for we can guess for musical making tea making tea yeah could well have been big old (laughs) mug of mug of tea um they could just be cult objects and in fact in southern vietnam and in java where some of these dongson drums had been found they'd been buried as containers for human bodies so i guess somebody of note would have been buried in in the drum with the last paradiddle as they went down yes that's right yeah (laughs) yeah somebody who was like you can take this from my cold dead hands as they buried themselves (laughs) in their drum i don't want anyone else having my drum I want to be buried in a drum, and I, as I'm lowered down, I want you to go. Ba-dum, ba-dum, oh man! <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I almost felt bad for cutting into that joke, and now I don't. Anyway, so Dongson drums—they are an exceptional example of metalworking for this time period, and that time period is between 600 BCE. And 300 AD. Very convenient for podcasters, we know. (laughs) Yes, there was a bit of relief when I discovered this. (laughs) The artwork on the side of the drums, the boat and the people and the the concentric geometric shapes, all those sort of things, they just so happen to tie in and mirror the images which are on the rock art themselves. So you can kind of put two and two together and think, 
if we know that the drums are from this specific period and the artwork on the on the rock is mirroring that, you can kind of guess that the artwork's probably been done just around about the same time. Anyway, so it raises the question of why the drums, which are being made in Vietnam, are in East Timor at all, right? Why are they there? Why are they all over Southeast Asia? And the answer to that is a sea-based network of trade and exchange, which has been ongoing for a thousand years longer than before the arrival of the Europeans. Like the Silk Road, but the Salt Road. The Salt Road. That's great. We should copyright that. That's Trademark. Awesome. Trademark. <laughs> the Fishy Road, I was going to suggest. <laughs> that sounds all kinds of wrong. Let's stick with the Salt Road, shall we? <laughs> Okay, so in the classical period, in the north, you've got the Indian and the Chinese empires, and they're starting to flourish at this point. Each is expanding their boundaries, and they are meeting and engaging with ethnically, culturally different groups of peoples. So trade becomes essentially the first step, the, the foot in the door um, for these interactions. It's a very friendly way of, hey, we give you this, you give us that, maybe we'll come back, we'll do that again, you know, and it's just a slowly, slowly nice way of, of, of meeting new people. And so raw materials, luxury goods, they're starting to get traded around. You've got food crops and animals that are being traded. Uh, you've got people, technology, religious beliefs, and even diseases. Not strictly trade, I would have said, in the case yeah, of diseases. Trade them around. We're going to give you this one. <laughs> I've got the smallpox if you would care for some HPV. Oh, we've been interested in the smallpox. Yeah, yeah we have a lot of demand. There's a lot of demand here. <laughs> so land routes, are obviously, as you mentioned, Silk Road, uh, they are the basis for much of long distance trade. Much easier, a bit safer. But there is a change in technology at this point. Uh, you've got sailing technology comes in like lateen sails and dow ships, which I think we've talked about previously. We have in the episode about... UAE. UAE, that's right. And uh, also knowledge of the monsoon winds. So people are studying the winds now and they're starting to realise, oh, actually, we could go at this point and that will help give us a push. So it opens up the, the seas to new routes, which up to that point, they'd just been following the coasts. Now they're looking, actually, well, maybe we'll just go deep sea and cross over and go different ways. So which is a brave move, isn't it? That first a, person who went, for sure. just going to go straight out and see what happens. Yeah. So from the beginning of the common era, uh, you've got Indian traders that are now looking for exotic spices and gold, specifically to trade with Arabs and Romans. So that's their objective, that we want, they want spices and gold. And so these traders, they reach where modern Cambodia is, southern Vietnam, um, by at least the first or second century. So we're getting close to sort of our time period, 467, but certainly they've, they've reached around there at that point. And they bring scholars with them who help them to spread their religious philosophies and their traditions to the people that they meet. Uh, but not the merchants, which is those people that you'd actually be trading with, but with the elite classes, they, they go for the top. And they, it's those people that then disseminate down to the lower ranks. So if the people at the top start doing it, those in the lower classes start to mirror that. Let, let me see if I've got this. Who's bringing the scholars? The traders. The traders bring so, a scholar. You put a scholar on your boat. Or a couple. And yeah. you hand your scholar to the local chiefy headman. They arrive say, on an Would you island. like a scholar? 
<laughs> no, they're not trading scholars. The, the scholars are traveling with them and they're just saying, hey, look, here's a fun new bit of technology or a fun bit of religion that you might be interested in. And these people are, are listening because they're wanting to trade and they want to do these things. So it's 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 a it's more of a conversation. It's just a this is a, a, a passive way of just passing information as they're traveling around Southeast Asia. Hello, are you Salt Road Trading Limited? Yes, I am. How can I help? Well, you see, I'm the chief of the village and I need to talk to you about my scholar. Ah, the free scholar with every trade promotion. Absolutely. Let me bring up your record. Ah, yes. I see here you're entitled to an upgrade. Upgrade? Yes. At Salt Road Trading, upgrades are an essential part of our commitment to customer service excellence. This upgrade introduces several new important features. Notably, three new striking outfits for your scholar to wear, including dinner party, award ceremony, and swimwear. Well, that's all very nice. And it's not just cosmetic either. We're introducing new functionality, and we think you're going to love it. If you could just take these books. Yes, it is a robust update. That's the language upgrade. Once installed, your scholar will be equipped with Irish Gaelic, Serbo-Croat, South Levantine Arabic, Swahili, Urdu, Western Punjabi, Chinese, Mandarin Chinese, Hakka Chinese, Minnan Chinese, Gan Chinese, Mindong Chinese, and Klingon. Okay, look, but I need- And we're introducing an opportunity for qualifying customers at no obligation seven-day trial philosophy module. This upgrade brings you epistemology, metaphysics, and aesthetics. And I see you do qualify for this offer. Yep, that's nice, Great. but- I'll go ahead and add that to the package. And lastly, as our commitment to your security, we'll be adding a security patch. This patch will be sewn on nice and tight and prevent malicious actors getting in through the back door. Right, but as I'm trying to tell you- So, if you'd just like to bring your scholar out here, we'll get him upgraded in no time. But that's what I've been trying to say. Problem is our scholar. He's been hacked. To death. The Indians weren't inhabiting any of the any of the lands. Uh, in fact, uh, the Indian religion was so absorbed into the culture that Hindu elements are still an integral part of the Indonesian culture. So, if you look at the national airline, for example, is named Garuda, which is the uh, Hindu god of the birds. Cool. And Bali is a Hindu nation, a Hindu island. You look around. There's there's a fair few of them now. Meanwhile, at the same time, the Chinese are doing something similar that they haven't got quite as far as the Indians had at this point. So they're starting to acquire their own information. They're starting to build their own maps, their own network. And they're starting to 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 reach out into Southeast Asia as well. Are they pushing scholars as well, or just donks and drums? It seems. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and by 300 AD, there is now a network of these maritime trade routes which are linking all the way from India through to China, and they're running well, essentially from. East Africa, all the way through to East Timor. Wow. But I want to talk to you about Claudius Ptolemios. Do you know anything about Claudius Ptolemios? I do not. No. Many people at the time didn't either. He was kind of unknown. But we're talking about 150 AD in Alexandria. There is a Greek cosmographer called Claudius Ptolemios, and he wrote a book about the Indian Ocean. Now, he loved mathematics, he loved astronomy and he loved map making. And it was as part of his research on all of those things that he wrote instructions for a map called, oh no, here we go, Geographic Hitchifigesis, <laughs> which meant geographical guidance. Yeah. Anyway, and it covered the Mediterranean, the Northeast Africa, the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, the coast of Asia from Arabia all the way to North Vietnam. He provided 
the latitude and longitude of 8,000 places. Had he been to these places? No, just from his research. He was able to describe the Indian Ocean better than Northern Europe in 150 <laughs> AD. He knew of 42 cities. He knew of six imperion, uh, which are the trading ports, uh, five metropolis, it's like capital cities, I guess, uh, and one royal city, which was in Myanmar. Wow. And yeah. He did that just with Google. Just with Google. Yeah. Googleios. <laughs> Telemios! Telemios! What, Mum? I'm working! Working? Playing with those maps more like. They're not just maps, Mum. They're valuable navigational aids. Well, I don't care what they are. You should be outside playing with the other kids. I'm 48 years old, Mum. Not too old to go across my knee. Mum! So after Telemios, that, that information just disappears because he wasn't recognised during his time. That information just sits on a shelf. And this veil of ignorance descends over, over, over the land for almost 1,500 years until the Europe was starting to match his level of knowledge about the area. It's a real irony, isn't it? Do you imagine all these sailors going around going, oh, kill for a good map, and there's right? just one sitting in a Sit, cupboard somewhere. Sitting there, with longitude and longitude and <laughs> names and all sorts. Yeah, amazing. So do we get the word telemetry from his name? Ooh, good question. One for the internet. Internet. Telemetry is a word used to describe the act of measuring at a distance. It is most commonly used to describe the act of capturing data on one device and exporting it to another location for storage and analysis. An example of this is the tracking of wild animals, where electronic tags are placed on animals to transmit time and location data to a central database where it can be cross-referenced against a map. The word telemetry originates from the Greek words, metron and tele, meaning to measure at a distance. Thank you. No. <laughs> right. So we know that the Indians, the Chinese, they have their networks of trade. They're kicking it about, shipping and selling. And that Timor was involved, right? You know, at least in the acquisition of the bronze drums. But what were they trading for those drums? You should be asking yourself. What were they trading for those drums, I wonder? That's a really good question. Well, let me tell you. So the most lucrative item that there was in East Timor, it seems, was sandalwood. It's a type of tree. Uh, it's like this aromatic wood. You may have seen it. It's used in cosmetics and perfumes. It smells nice, so you make sandals out of it. N no. no. <laughs> <laughs> You're thinking of clogs. No wonder the Dutch were interested. Right? Yeah. yeah that's oh, why. fragrant clogs. <laughs> what a deal. You'd clean feet. up if you were like, look at these clogs. They smell delicious. Yeah, well, that's the thing. And not only does it smell delicious, but it's a fragrance that lasts for decades. Anyway, it's it was super popular then. It is super popular today. It's one of the most expensive woods in the world, even today. And unfortunately, it's resulted in a bit of deforestation in East Timor now, where it's most much of it is scrubland and such since. Anyway, this seems to have been the major export of Timor. Uh, the Chinese came along and went, we want some of this. And then the Indians came along and went, we'll have some too. And then later on, the Portuguese came along and went, Sandalwood? <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> and then the Dutch came along and went, hmm, clogs. Yes, cool. <laughs> <laughs> and from the Timorese perspective, they're just giving their trees away, right? Fine, we've got just hundreds tree. of trees. <laughs> they're right? everywhere, right? Now we've got this drum. Bronze drum, <laughs> exactly, yeah. And uh, which is great. And that's probably what they were doing. But bear in mind, there's only two drums there. So you're not going to get a whole lot of trade. You know, clearly it wasn't it went drums all over the place. Right. So there must have been trading something else. And what 
the team Marie's were really interested in was less the drums, although I'm sure they were very happy with those, although they did end up burying them. (laughs) (laughs) They were probably something more interested in chewing something. Betel chewing is one of Timor's most traditional customs. It's in use even today and across much of Southeast Asia. Basically, you take an areca nut, which is the seed of a palm, uh, the leaf of the betel pepper, which looks like a vine leaf, and lime, which in Timor they keep in these gourds slung around their waist. And you take the leaf, you put some lime paste on it, you put thin slices of the nut, the areca nut on it, you fold it, roll it into a little bite-sized packet, which they call a quid, and then you pop it in your mouth and you chew it. You, you know if you're chewing betel because your mouth turns red like it's like it's bleeding. Uh, the, the ingredients mix with saliva and it turns bright red. Uh, in fact, when the early European visitors uh, arrived, so Portuguese and the Dutch arrived, they thought that everybody had tuberculosis. <laughs> and yeah. we're quite pleased with that fact <laughs> yeah they were and the happiest tuberculosis victims we've ever come across <laughs> they were they were super happy with it and betel juice is spat out they don't swallow it um so you know wherever you're walking there are these splotches of what looks like dried blood on the floor in nice. fact they use it as a distance a measuring distance as well so it's like three betels is like three spitting distance between here and the next village or whatever. So Fun why times. do you do that? Is this narcotic slightly or something? It, yes, you're right. It is uh, addictive. It is like caffeine uh, or tobacco in that it's highly addictive. It, it, it produces a race of the pulse and it increases brain activity. It's like taking a dab. Someone described it as like taking a dab of heavily cut speed and rubbing it on the gums. Yeah, so you are super hyped up on it. And it's used by all ages. Children are chewing on it, adults, old people. I mean, everybody's getting in on the game. Uh, It is addictive. And the World Health Organization, the WHO, has classified the actual beetle nut as a product which they say promotes the formation of cancer. Also, it's spitting red gobs everywhere, which is pretty nasty. Yeah, I mean, it's linked to tooth decay. It's linked to cancer of the mouth, the esophagus, and so on. So the origins of it, it's debated. Um, there's, the consensus is that it comes from India, uh, is an Indian origin, and that it was traded through as part of the Southeast Asia expansion. Um, and of course, once it's in the society, it's a pretty handy way of being like, well, we've got more of that. <laughs> you know, so it seems like a pretty conniving way of um, of getting regular orders. First battle's free. First battle is free. That's exactly right. And it does mean that the Timorese would have put in more orders. Orders. <laughs> orders. Order. <laughs> oh yeah. my God, I forgot about <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. Really if I hadn't been a look on your face, it would have passed me by completely. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. <laughs> Okay, right. So we're heading to the end now. You're in the. You've done well listening to all of this so far. It's been interesting. I don't think I've done well at all. I've been gripped. Okay, well that's good. So there is one consistent theme, right, between the rock art and the Dongsun drums, and that is the depiction of those figures in the headdress. 
don't know if you remember I told you about those. Flowery, feathery headdresses. Well, those f- flowery headed, headdressed people, they are, are depicted carrying ceremonial axes known as a candrasa. And in their other hand, a severed human head. Ooh. Right. Now, it can be interpreted that the decapitation is an imagery of headhunting. It's a practice that was spread throughout the whole of Southeast Asia, including Timor. Now, there are no, obviously, no eyewitness accounts until the Europeans arrive um, in the 16th century. But the early missionaries who did arrive described headhunting as a long established custom. So we can kind of put the two things together and we can say that headhunting was likely happening at the same time. Right. So when you say headhunting, what do we really mean by that? Well, let's talk about headhunting, shall we? Why not? You're going to love this. It is a way of structuring and reinforcing the hierarchy of the the communities, the individuals, the way in which the society is sort of run. Maintaining order, you might say. Yes. <laughs> you might. <laughs> Stop stealing my order joke. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, specifically, though, around the, the, the creation of the, the male role model, the masculinity itself is a huge big part of it. So let's go through it. So pre-hunt. The headhunter villages, they have low circular beehive-shaped huts. They're about three meters in diameter, but the ceiling is only one meter above the dirt floor. And the thatch descends right to the ground. There are no windows, there are no chimneys, and they have the barbecues inside these huts. So they are full of smoke. All the thatch and everything is just black and soot. As a side note, when uh, a mother has the baby, they spend 40 days and 40 nights inside those huts without being let out. Essentially being kippered by the smoke. (laughs) So if you can get through that, you're pretty leathered up for the rest of your life. Yeah, I suspect that's probably the rationale behind it. Yeah, yeah. They also bury the placenta under the doorway. So when you walk in, it's just, I guess, full of placenta under that doorway. That's how I like to enter a room. That's why I always carry my own placenta, (laughs) just in case someone hasn't done that. Your own personal one? Uh, No, no, it's one I uh, found. (laughs) That's so worse. I found it under a doorway. Oh my God. Right. The village itself, so all those beehive-shaped huts, they're surrounded by a fort. And that fort essentially is a two-meter-high wall of jagged coral rock. So brought up from the sea. And they build up this this two-meter, which is quite high. And on top of that wall... There is a line all the way around of that uh, of cactuses, like you know, like you get in a wild west, and so big old spiky cacti, cacti, cactuses, yeah. cacti. Let's go with that. Yeah, and that acts as like a kind of barbed wire, like a razor wire, stops people from trying to get into the village, and this is where the council meets to plan their attack. Maybe you can help explain this bit because I found this bit and I didn't understand what it means. But let's try and work it out together. So, if they are coming from the north, yes, they measure with a stick. Towards the north. 
And if the fingers don't reach to the central pole, they will then decide to hunt heads. No, I have no idea. What right? No, no, did I? So, <laughs> good job because if that doesn't work, right, which is super confusing, which definitely won't. <laughs> yeah. Whose fingers? What fingers? Are these yeah. my fingers? <laughs> they ask the eggs. Oh, well, that makes much more sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which means checking if there's any blood in the egg, and if there is any blood in the egg, guess what they do? Hunt heads. They hunt heads. That's right. Now, only men can hunt heads, and they can only do it after the age of forty which I thought was older than I expected. Wow, I thought it would yeah. be a young man's game, but it is not. And it is seen as a male skill and a craft which is acquired slowly, I guess like woodwork or something else. And uh, it's perfected, young, young men, boys, perfect it uh, by practicing on small animals and birds. Wow. So the men prepare for the hunt by training, combat training, and they eat special foods which women are not allowed to touch. In fact, uh, much like modern day sports stars, they are kept away from women. And uh, the husbands and wives have to remain apart until the big day itself, I guess, so that you don't tire yourself out and you're all pumped up with testosterone ready for the ready for the hunt. So let's get to the hunt. The chief bestows the title Mayo to the hunters, M-E-O, which is like the equivalent of like a, a medieval order of knights. The Mayo head out on the Mangeo, uh, which means to go out and cut heads, Mangeo. Right. Mm. So if anyone says, hey, Pete, Fancy mangoe? No, I'm all right, mate. Yeah, there you go. Got to pick up any placenta later. <laughs> You're weird. <laughs> <laughs> and they hunt uh, the menfolk of the other villages. Right, I guess I'm beginning to see how you end up with an island with a hundred different languages. You do. That's <laughs> exactly right. Super welcoming to your neighbour. Yes. They might well be going for your head. <laughs> sixty chiefdoms. You know, sixty kingdoms were described. Yeah, you can see how. With a two meter high wall of jagged coral rock <laughs> protecting you, yeah. So yeah, it does. It does seem a bit battle royal, doesn't it? Um, Fortnite or something on the island. Ah, oh, East Timor, the game. Trademark, go. trademark. <laughs> <laughs> so they hunt the the menfolk of the other villages, and when they find them, bizarrely, they cut off their heads with a curved blade. Just and this is a sport rather than a no, no. This is tactical politicking. So it's like power game. Yeah, I think I threw you off by saying it's like modern day sport. It is not a sport. It is, uh, yeah, this is like a a way of expanding your village and proving your worth. And okay, so and instead of like a full on war, you just they do. So are they going for lots of heads? Is it like a I battle? I think that's why just... they. I think that's why they're looking for the fortune to tell us whether they should go and hunt heads. It's this isn't just about those guys did something against us, so we need to go back and, and repay them. It just seems to just be the culture. Anyway, sambali means cutting the head without totally severing it from the body. Happened often enough that they had to come up with a word for it, which is quite frightening. Uh, but when they take a head, so the minute that the head has been taken, the arayal, which are the warriors, the arayal of Mayo, I guess. So they sing the Lurosai, which is the, the rising sun, and it is a chant which is melodic, and has harmony to it, and I have a sample, and I'm going to play it right now. headless bodies they're just sort of left where they are so you take the head you don't you leave the body it's just left behind 
And despite being the easiest to kill, women, old people, children, they were actually considered the most particular prize. So oh, it wasn't man. just this hunting is like the men. Death Race 2000. Yeah. And why do you think that is? Why do you think they were a particular um, prize? Applying a point system to the situation? Not quite. No, it just demonstrated that the the the, the, the headhunter, the guy who successfully took the head off the child or the, the woman or whatever, that they'd actually been able to penetrate into the heart of enemy territory and kill those who the men of that village should have been protecting. Oh, wow. That's kind of sensible and awful. Indeed. How about that? So, yeah. Right. Post-hunt. So you've now got your head. You've come back to your village. Um, so let's say that you are one of the mayor, right? So you've cut off the head of, of, of a man or a woman or an old person. Small child. Small I'm a child. really good warrior. Let's, let's not go with small child for this one. So you've come back to the village. You've got yourself your head. Um, and you are now considered asue, meaning brave. And you're now entitled to a reward from the regulo, which is the chief or the ruler. Rewards might include a new title, um, which depends on your success. So if you've taken lots of heads, you might be called Neopimia, Neopima, Pitsj. <laughs> Neopimi Pitsj. I'm not pronouncing that right. I can imagine. <laughs> but it means man of frequent killing. So you might be, that might be your title, man of frequent killing. And then you might be Kusfejuro Ipsij. Man of moderate to occasional killing. <laughs> Man with many skulls. Ah. Yeah. So these are, these are, again, this is all about sort of building up your esteem, your masculinity, your manliness, building up your, uh, your name. Uh, and to get these rewards, you return home with your head. You wait inside the fort for four days and four nights with the head on a bamboo stick. And during that time, you get your little betel chew and you put it in the head's mouth. Um, and the reason is so that they don't miss out on the pleasures that they had in life. Thoughtful, but a little too late, I would have said. <laughs> Could have just done that during the fight, right? <laughs> if you just want to pop me a pedal, ideally before you start hacking my head off, that would be perfect. <laughs> That'd be great. That would be it. Like, instead of headhunting, like, it's battle hunting and you, you have to get to the other and pop it in their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I win! And you run away and they're like, ah, oh, but still but chewy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, right. It doesn't stop there. The, uh, an old female shaman will come in and receive the head. They will comb its hair and they will feed it with rice and pork. Which I can only imagine falls through. I, I was just trying to picture my way through that, and it was not a pleasant experience. <laughs> anyway, so after the four days, the heads are then all brought to the king. And the king goes, cool, loads of heads, thanks, because he gets to keep them, essentially. And a ceremony is then held, which then elevates those men uh, who have taken the head, the mayo, and uh, it turns them into the invulnerable man with a body of iron and a head of stone. A Tony Ubesi Mafnafaktu. Anyway, the ceremony start at night. Uh, it start begins with a young woman who dresses as a mayo. She dresses up as the guy, and she leads the male initiates into the sort of the shrine area, and all the heads are displayed to the tribe. The warriors form a circle, each of them standing around the head that they have cut off, and the ceremony proper starts at that point. The chief he stands at the centre of the circle, and he begins by singing the lorosai, which we've heard, and during that chant he presents the heads to the crowd. Look at all these heads that what we have 
successfully cut off. He then expresses a thousand apologies, super apologetic to each of the heads for having cut, it being cut off. Then he starts to argue with the head, saying why decapitation was necessary, and tells it not to worry because it's not gonna it's not gonna fall short of anything. Hence, like the the being fed and looked after and all that sort of stuff. Then it gets a little bit crazy. And um, he starts raising his axe at these heads and starts yelling at them and saying, you know, why did you have to arm yourself against us? You know, why, why did you want to kill us? You know, <laughs> didn't you know that we're stronger than you are? You know, like he's just raising his argument for it why. It feels like don't... therapy, man. <laughs> yeah. Now, unsurprisingly, the heads don't respond. Yeah, they so tend he... not to, don't they? Yeah. So he gets super furious and he starts throwing the heads around. He screeches and jumps up and down. He kicks the heads around the floor. Um, and everyone joins it, right? This is just now a big head riot. Riot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and the the old female shaman and the other woman of the, the the tribe, they're all dancing now before the heads. They become possessed by the spirits of the heads. They they toss their head back and forth, you know, amongst themselves. They're they're kicking the the heads. They're wearing them like a hat. They suck blood from the heads, uh, like milk from a coconut. Um, but at the same time, while this is happening, the women see it as their their duty essentially to placate sympathize with with the skull's angry spirit they 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 they're empathizing with the mothers and wives of the men who have been killed or the, the people that have been killed so even while they're doing this wild dancing of crazy kicking and and uh, madness they're also lamenting too so this is kind of lamenting sad cry that goes along with the head hunting Boy, there's a lot to unpack here isn't there <laughs> sure is and this and the ceremony then ends with sex not with the heads uh they all mark their sexual relationships husbands and wives young men and young women um they all have sex and this goes on it's not just a one night this goes on night after night exactly the same ceremony precisely everything happening exactly in the same way that it did the previous night again and again and again i've got a vision of the, all this tremendous frenzy and anger and lamenting and then sex yeah and then everyone kind of going so same time tomorrow yeah, same time right, tomorrow yeah. all right <laughs> just put the heads back will you <laughs> Right. So there you go. That pretty much is it. I just want I guess the last thing really to note is that in terms of order for this, <laughs> because the topic was order. It was. Right. You're going to have to roll with me on this. So according to the dictionary. <laughs> oh, we've gone to the dictionary. Uh, let me sit back a minute. I, I want to be ready for this. This is more for Paul Dursley than for anyone else listening. <laughs> <laughs> I really want a good grade this week. So I'm I'm trying to sort of justify it now. So in terms of order, trading, which we spoke about, that sea-based network of trading, that is a request to make, supply, or deliver food or goods. Absolutely. I order a big bronze drum, please. There you go. Exactly. Yes. The next one, head, uh, headhunting. All right. The way in which people or things are arranged either in relation to one another or according to another particular characteristic. We must keep order in the village we by a nice headhunting expedition. Exactly. Um, drum. <laughs> this one's a little bit weaker. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, drummy. Okay. Remember that drum that was broken? Yes. It wasn't in the state of correctly working or being suitable for use. It was a disordered drum. It's just, yes. 
<laughs> it was out of order. Oh, my good Lord. Yeah, you, those first two were all right. That last one, you lost me, I'll be honest. All right, fair enough. But I have to say, absolutely tremendous job with a very, very difficult topic there, my friend. Yeah, my goodness. I found that very interesting. I found it on point, on topic, on time, and it was A-OK by me. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. So, so it's it's that time. It is. It's your time. Okay, you ready? I'm ready. All right, here we go. I'm bringing up the doors later. Okay, right. So, Pete, are you ready? I am ready. Okay, does later is primed, it's pumped, it's gassed. I had to put put that on my credit card. Yeah, it's a, it's a quite quite a gas guzzler, isn't it? <laughs> it uses diesel. It uses diesel these days. We need to get does later to be electric. Yeah, I'm slightly surprised it's not on leaded. <laughs> Tesla later. Tesla later. <laughs> we need to go into the modern age. Right, pull the crank. Wind okay. the pulley. All right, I'm doing all of those things. Watch <laughs> the mainsail. All right, and your country is. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, okay. This is the first time we've had this. Because this is wild card. Oh, we have you right. You get a choice of country. I get to choose the country. You get to choose the country. Do I have to choose it now, though? Yes. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I'm, I, don't, I can feel the pressure. <laughs> All right. I'm going to apply a sound effect of a time clock. Yes. All right. You've got, I'm going to, I'm going to count 30 seconds. Ready? Okay. Okay. Go. Anywhere in the world. No, so much Northern Hemisphere. Southern Hemisphere. Which continent will he pick? Russia. Whoa. You sounded certain. You yes. sure? You can change it. You've no, still got about 10 I'm seconds. I'm saying Russia. All right, Russia it is. All right, let's find out what time. What's the time, Mr. Wolf? And the time is... The Early Middle Ages. Ooh. Early. 476 to 1000 AD. Prehistory ended on 476, so we're actually picking up off the back of the classical period. Okay, and uh, your topic? To tie this all up neatly. Something extravagant. It's equality. Equality. Ooh. Neat, I like that. So Russia in the early Middle Ages between 476 to 1000, and it's equality. I'm excited. There's, so there's got to be something, hasn't there? Well, in the whole of Russia? There's... Yeah, or kind certainly of something happened. For it's a big enough landmass, I'd probably be able to find something. <laughs> Very <laughs> that good. That was my strategy. <laughs> Very good. Pete, I am super excited. All right, that's the show for this week. Thank you so much for listening, as ever. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with us about any of the things we've talked about, anything you've learned, anything we should learn, uh, we can be found on Twitter, which is uh, at HHE Podcast, or you can email us at hhepodcast at gmail.com. You never know, you might end up featured on a future show. Yeah, and one way to definitely feature on a future show is to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Uh, in the meantime, you can find and join discussions about the show on Facebook and Reddit, so make sure that you head on over there and subscribe to those guys, uh, as well as Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn. We're on all of these things, and you're going to get either a, a hit of history or uh, uh, one of our animated bites in your feed almost every day. 
Uh, we'll be back next week, obviously, with uh, the verdict episode, our after show podcast, where our raconteur, friend, judge, jury, and executioner, Paul Dursley, will join us to greed and make fun of all of our efforts this time. Yes, he certainly will. And give me a poor score. And uh, if that's not enough, like if you're like, what? I, that's not nearly enough. I want more, right? I've been missold. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can always head back and have a look at our archive, um, which is on hhepodcast.com or you can go onto youtube where we've got them all listed on there and uh, and have a listen back just go wherever you go and search for hhe podcast you, you might find us you'll trip over it somewhere <laughs> that's for sure so there you go that was this week's podcast i guess all that needs to be said now is you've been listening to history happened everywhere Hey guys, uh, I've called this all hand meeting because I wanted to update you all on developments for the village, okay? So, as you all know, I haven't been chief for very long. Uh, and, I mean, I really don't even like the word chief. We're just friends, yeah? And you just do what I say. So, uh, I don't want anyone calling me chief, actually, okay guys? And by guys, obviously, I mean men and women and or however you choose to identify. Which brings me, funnily enough, to headhunting. Now, we're all grateful to my predecessor who did an excellent work establishing a vibrant culture of hunting and killing humans. But it's time for a change, okay? Until now, only men over the age of 40 have been able to partake, and that's like inequality, yeah? And we don't support inequality in this village. Uh, so I'd like to introduce at this point Teresa, who will be joining us on the board as Director of Representation. Well, hi, everyone. Yeah, just wanted to say it's lovely to be here. Uh, just wanted to lay out my plans. That's great, for... Teresa. Great to have you on board. You can sit down now. Okay. okay. Uh, last time we spoke, I introduced our village values, okay? Integrity, honesty, survival, and headhunting. Now, I know we've all been practicing these, and that's great. I'm really glad to see the way you've all really embraced them. But it has brought to light a challenge in our value of headhunting. So... You might not know this, but on my gap year, travelling in India, yeah, I converted to veganism. Okay, so now the thing about killing humans is that is totally not vegan. So I'm really pleased to be able to tell you that we have a roadmap now that will take us to 100% vegan headhunting before the end of Q1 next year. Okay, so right, look, we're out of time, guys, but if anyone has any questions, do come and see me. I have an open hut policy. I mean, literally, it doesn't even have a door. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, stay frosty, guys, okay? And I'll catch you on the flip side, yeah? <coughs> so, um, so what'd you make of that? Well, it was a load of old rubbish, wasn't it? Should we cut his head off? Yeah.